people say, how is life treating you? Well, I don't respond to that anymore because it's not what life is doing to me. It's what am I doing to life? Life is going to come at all of us. It's not what life's doing to us. It's what do we do when life brings curveballs to us? That's where your power comes from. So ask yourself, how am I treating life? Oh, hello, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen. This is Nishant, and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Kirk Show. My mission is to help people get in touch with their emotions and feelings, connect to themselves, and being a source of healing. My job on the show is to invite the world-class experts to deconstruct the practices, routines, and habits to help you live a fulfilled and abundant life. This episode is brought to you by my own Friday newsletter. Every Friday, I share an exclusive email to the newsletter subscribers, which mentions what I'm learning, recent podcast updates, things I'm experimenting with, books I'm reading, and much, much more. You can find the newsletter link at my website, https colon slash slash nishantgarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. And today's guest is Brian Robinson. Brian is a licensed psychotherapist and author of two novels and 40 non-fiction books. He applies his experiences to crafting insightful non-fiction, self-help books, and psychological thrillers. His multi-award winning murder mystery, Limestone Gumption, won the new Apple Book Medal for Best Psychological Suspense. His most recent release is Daily Writing, Resilience, 365 Meditations and Inspirations for Writers. He has written for Psychology Today, and natural health. He is a consulting editor for The Big Thrill, the online magazine for international thriller writers. His long-selling book, Chained to the Desk, is now in its third edition. His books have been translated into 13 languages, and he has appeared on every major television network. Good Morning America, ABC's World News Tonight, NBC Nightly News, NBC Universal, the CBS Early Show. He hosted the PBS documentary, overdoing it, how to slow down and take care of yourself. In this episode, Brian talks about work addiction, workaholism, internal family systems therapy, why relationships fail, creating micro chill moments, offsetting job stress, four quadrants of work addiction, work-life balance, sweetness of doing nothing, and much, much more. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Brian Robinson. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nishan. It's a pleasure to be here. It is my pleasure as well. And I was enjoying so much reading about your work that you have done in last many, many decades. Before we were before this recording, we were having a brief chat and you mentioned about the hiking and kayaking, your love for that. Could you please share your love for hiking? It's actually my love for being in nature. I'm fortunate enough to live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I live on the side of a mountain, and I have a beautiful view of the sunsets in the evening of the western view of the uh, Great Smoky Mountains. And actually, that's where I find the most peace and comfort is when I remind myself, and I'm not doing anything. The Italians call this the sweetness of doing nothing. We don't have words in our vernacular in the English language to actually even describe it, but it's called the sweetness of doing nothing and just sitting and looking at the mountains and the sunset where I'm in the mountains and then all of a sudden the mountains are in me and my blood pressure goes down, my breathing slows, my muscles loosen, and I feel a oneness. And that's not just something I experience, but it's something anybody can experience if they're in a green park or on a hike at the beach or in the mountains or somewhere where there's nature. There's a lot of research now showing that 120 minutes a week, that's two hours, and it doesn't matter how you divide it up or where you are, as long as you're in nature, it doesn't matter what you're doing, lowers your blood pressure, puts you in the present moment. That's a form of open awareness, mindfulness when you can just be and not do and just be in that moment. Now, that sounds easy, but for a lot of people listening right now who are not used to doing that, that's not as easy as it sounds. Because many (laughs) of us, when we try to be in the present moment and just sit and do nothing, 
our mind starts spinning. Oh, I got to do this. What about that? I don't have time to be sitting here. I need to get busy. So it takes a little bit of discipline just to be able to sit and do nothing. As a result of that, I've developed something called micro chillers. And these are short, five minute or less exercises. They're obviously cost free. They're quick. They're easy. They're portable. You can do them anywhere and flexible. And five minutes or less, if, if you, those listening, just want to take time to be somewhere in nature, it would be great. If you don't have access to nature, you can do it. In, in a private place in, in the, where you feel safe and just listen to sounds for two or three minutes or follow your breath without judgment, just watch. And what you will notice, and actually you can do this for one minute and you will notice that you're, you move into what we call the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the brakes. Because so many of us have the gas and, you know, if you're driving a car, you need both gas and brakes. You can't, just have gas, although that's how many of us live our lives. And I'll raise my hand because that's the way I've lived most of my life. But this is the new Brian living more, hopefully, from my rest and digest response instead of my fight or flight response. So we can talk more about that. But I think it's important for everybody. We, we tend to look outside ourselves for peace, buy a car, buy new clothes or rearrange furniture. There's nothing wrong with that, but really, it's an inside job. We have to go inside to regulate our nervous system, our autonomic nervous system, if we really want to find peace and really know who we are. I know that's a long answer to your question. I love long answers. So when you speak of doing nothing, in the area of doing nothing, do you think we can watch TV, we can read books, or just nothing? Of course, there's nothing wrong with watching TV. There's nothing wrong with reading a book. In fact, those are all good things to do as diversions. But they don't really help us connect with ourselves. If I'm watching Judge Judy, it may be entertaining, but uh, once it's over, I haven't really invested anything in my internal system. Or reading a book, obviously, a lot of people get calmed down and sleepy. But those are great activities, but there's nothing to replace sitting quietly, going within uh, for a short period of time. And that's really important. The micro chiller is you can actually do these while you're going about your daily routines. I'm a psychotherapist and between patients, I will often, uh, when I'm walking from my office, maybe to the restroom or to pick something up in the kitchen, I will often do a micro chiller. And all that is, is I'm not just thinking about what I have to do next. I'm in the present moment. I'm aware of my feet on the floor as I'm walking. I'm aware of how I'm feeling on the inside. I'm aware of sounds around me. I'm aware of colors and, and people that I might see. I'm, I try to be in the present moment, and that's what a microchiller is, because when you do that, it has a, a physiological effect, but it, it's present moment awareness that if you start practicing after a while, it becomes muscle memory and it becomes automatic. And you will notice automatically you're not as stressful. Things don't trigger you or activate you as much automatically. It's a scientist, the neuroscientists call it widening your resilience zone. So over time, that zone widens and you're, you're giving your parasympathetic, which is the rest and digest response, as much attention as you're giving your sympathetic or the uh, fight or flight part of the autonomic nervous system. So... I hope I answered your question. Yes, you did. Brian, you mentioned that this is you, the newer version, and the the new Brian is different from old Brian. So what what is the difference between old Brian and new Brian, if this question makes sense? Well, of course, I am the same person, and there are pieces of the old Brian still in me, but the old Brian, I would describe, and I've written about this in my book, Chained to the Desk, a relentless workaholic. I was a professor at the university and we had to publish or perish and worked around the clock, holidays, weekends, day, night. It was pretty, pretty crazy, actually. And not only that, when we would go to the beach and my family would complain about me carrying a briefcase or a bunch of work, <laughs> I started hiding it, much like an alcoholic hiding a bottle. And so I would bootleg it in my jeans or under a spare tire. 
so they wouldn't nag me. And then once we got to the beach, everybody would say, we'd have, you know, a bunch of people and we'd say, let's go for a walk on the beach. And I would stretch and say, oh, I think I'm going to take a nap. They thought that was cool to see me relax. But of course, once they were off into the distance walking on the beach, I would pull out my work, just like an alcoholic sneaking a drink, and work feverishly until I heard them coming back. Now, as I say that to you, that sounds unwell. That's not healthy. But it was such an addiction for me that it was much like alcoholism. And it got my, it was kind of my version of cocaine or crystal meth, because it got me revved up and adrenaline going, and I got a high from it, and it was pretty, pretty bad. Of course, this is a little story I want to tell you what helped me, what made me turn. There were a lot of things, but I was a professor at the university, as I said, and we had a group of monks from Tibet come to perform. The night of the performance, they had these incredible costumes and the music they do and meditation and a group of religious fundamentalists picketed outside the auditorium. They had signs that said, Buddhists worship the devil and all kinds of fake news, crazy stuff. And I was incensed. That's the old brand. I was, I was furious. Well, when they, someone in, went in and uh, informed the monks, the monks stopped the show where they held the show. It hadn't started yet. All 10 of them walked outside. The group by then was singing Jesus Loves Me. And they joined hands with these fundamentalists and sang Jesus Loves Me with a smile on their faces. And guess what happened? The group disbanded. And I saw that and I thought, I want what they've got. I want what they've got. So it was a turning point for me. It, it's kind of like that movie uh, when Harry met Sally, and I don't know how many of you remember that, but uh, Meg Ryan is, I think it was Meg Ryan, is uh, feigning an orgasm, and the woman over beside her says, I want what she's having. <laughs> so I love the way the monks stayed in themselves. They didn't react. They had compassion. They didn't judge. And I just thought it was beautiful. And I've been on a quest ever since to find my version of that. And I certainly am not there 24-7. I'm like anybody else. I'm human, but I've certainly come a long way. And meditation has been one of the things and the micro chillers I use, which are forms of meditation. But you don't have to go sit for 20 minutes. You can do this five minutes or less as you're moving through your day. And it has the same effects. Do you have any formal meditation practice? Here's what I do. The formal meditation practice that I have is during the day, I have these short, they're 14, 40 minutes in the day. If we take five minutes a day, we still have 14, 35 minutes. So I take little five minutes here and five minutes there, and I try to sit for at least five minutes. And often once I start, I, I go to 10 or 15 because it feels so good where I just sit and follow my breath. But in addition to that, I use the micro chillers all day long. I've been using them this morning and I'll be using them off and on. So I use, I go throughout my day, daily routines and I'm using these techniques just to keep me centered. It, it moves us into what I call the C-spot. C-spot is calm clear, confident, courageous, meaning I'm willing to stick my neck out because I don't feel threatened by things as much as I used to. Uh, And as I stick my neck out, uh, that courage helps me grow and develop spiritually and professionally in other ways. Compassion, it deepens your compassion. So to get to your C-spot, micro-chillers are the own ramp. Hmm. Brian, I would like us to explore more on the work addiction and workaholism aspect. So when you found yourself addicted to work, what did it give you? What did you feel emotionally when you were work addicted? In the throes of the addiction, well, I didn't, I certainly didn't think much about what it was doing to me and the people that I loved. And all i thought about was getting the next project completed. And 
always said, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll work on balance once this is over. And of course, that never happened. It was one project, then the, oh, I'll go ahead and start this next one, and then the next one. And then sometimes three or four at one time, trying to balance those deadlines gave me that high. You know, it was like a threat of, am I going to be able to do this? And then that raises your adrenaline. I didn't understand all this at the t- while I was doing it. I, uh, this is in retrospect that I see how unhealthy that was. But then there came a time when I was miserable. It, it's like any addiction after a while, it takes you down. And it, nothing I ever did was enough. I kept just, there's a part of me that just kept driving me and driving me and driving me. And of course, eventually it will kill you. The Japanese have a term called karoshi, which means death from overwork. We don't, again, we don't have that word in our vocabulary in the English language, but work addiction kills people. And I started having a lot of, of physical issues, digestive problems, ended up having surgery. I was burnt out. I was tired all the time. I was snapping at people. So you can see it's a physical and an emotional illness. So that after a while, it just, it, it was hard for me to really function. Did you face any negative consequences in your personal relationships? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. In fact, my marriage pretty much disintegrated as a result of it. The way I looked at it back then is when my spouse would say, can we just spend some time together? That old me would get annoyed. How dare you interrupt me or or divert me from accomplishing the things that I need to get done? It was very self-centered, as any addiction is. And now when I look back, I have much sadness and regret that I was that focused on productivity versus compassion and love and connecting with the people I love the most. I'm curious to ask you, you may decide not to answer this question. So if at that point with your ex-spouse, if you knew compassion and kindness at that point, what different would you have done? We're still together. Oh, okay. <laughs> but what I would have done, and it wasn't just my marriage, it was also friends. I had no friends because every time friends wanted to do something, I was always busy. So they finally stopped calling. So this loneliness really cut so deep that I unwittingly created for myself. But But your question is, what would I do differently? Well, of course, knowing, understanding, seeing what I was doing from a bird's eye view, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. the old saying goes, I would certainly have spent more time idle moments. I grew up with this notion, a lot of people listening probably have heard this, that idle hands uh, are the devil's workshop. And what that means is if you're sitting and doing nothing, it it goes to no good. Of course, the reverse of that is true today with mindfulness uh, meditation. We know that idle mind is a great resource. It helps us. It reengages us. It uh, recharges our our batteries. So I've learned that, and you know, tr- I try to teach that in the writing I do and the, the talks. So I would have been more present in the moment and had more idle times and had more empathy and compassion for uh, my actions and and more responsibility for how affecting other people and that I'm not the center of the universe and uh, my work is not the most important thing on the planet. The most important thing on the planet for me and you, Nishant, and everybody listening is our self-care, number one, because nobody else can do that. (laughs) Maybe in the back of my mind, I thought, well, someday I'll I'll work on those things, but I I never did because the addiction won't let you. I want to ask you about more on addiction. So there is always a source. There is always a cause that goes back to childhood for any addiction. Would you mind talking about more on the causes of your work addiction? Yes, I will. And I'll preface that with my work over the last 20 years at the university and I get calls now from literally all over the world, people seeking help for work addiction. What I have personally discovered with thousands of people that I've worked with 
is that many of them come from alcoholic homes or, or, or dysfunctional homes where they are what we call parentified. And in psychology, parentification is when you're a, a child and you, because of the household you're living in, for one reason or another, you are required to take on adult responsibilities before you're fully constructed. Now, what that means is you could be seven years old paying the bills, and I've talked to adults who actually did this, paying the bills because their parents are snorting out on cocaine or having to uh, protect a, a sibling because the parents are not home for various reasons. And so what happens, you become a little adult. And in doing that, you forfeit childhood, your childhood, the spontaneity, the flexibility, you know, just letting go, just being a carefree child. And so you grow into a very serious adult who is focused on doing instead of being, because being feels very dangerous. If you allow yourself just to be in the present moment, your body can feel threatened because you learned as a child growing up, you had to always be hypervigilant for the next time that you would be catapulted into taking care of someone else or, or the, 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 an adult situation. In my case, my father was a classic alcoholic. I had a little sister. She's three years younger than me. And what would happen is we would go to the movies and see these great old movies and and this just happened hundreds of times. And we would come out and uh, my dad would, would have told us, I want you to be right here and I'll pick you up at nine o'clock. So we would go out and of course he wouldn't show up. And so we would go back and watch the movies again and come back. And most of the time he never showed up because he was out uh, drinking and had passed out and completely forgotten about us. So that scenario, when you're nine years old, you learn, I have to be in charge. Your nervous system kind of sets that I have to always be on guard. I have to always be in control. I have to always be in charge. So uh, I would figure out a way to get us home, either with the, the sometimes the police would take us home or the sometimes we would walk four miles in the dark with dogs chasing us. But my main job was protecting my little sister. But you see what I'm doing as a nine-year-old, what most young children do is they don't take care of themselves. The focus becomes other people, but out of necessity. So you grow up without self-care. You grow up taking care of everybody around you. So that's the legacy of most workaholics is that something happens that's traumatizing, that requires them in order to survive, to take care of a situation or a person in order to survive. And of course, that keeps their fight or flight system on a lot of the time, the red uh, red alert system. And that alarm system doesn't go off. But eventually, it, as an adult, there's a certain point at which uh, if you don't turn that off, it will kill you. And it certainly will destroy uh, marriages. I did the first study at the university on the effects of work addiction on marriage and found 40% of workaholic marriages end in divorce, and that's pretty high. Speaking of relationships, I think in 2018, you wrote a blog, The Five Reasons Relationship Fail. If you remember, could you elaborate on some of the reasons why relationships fail? One of the reasons is work addiction, for sure. So in general, why relationships fail? If you could share some light. The lack of communication is number one. You know, I always think of marriage as two people on an airplane, neither of whom have flown before. And one is excited and has their iPod on, listening to Lady Gaga. The other is terrified the plane's going to crash. And that person is white-knuckling the uh, armrest. Imagine two people having the same experience except having two total different experiences. So that's true in uh, a, a marriage. You have something happens, and based on what each person brings, there's something, a, a different perspective. And that's where the conflict comes from. So communication, 
specifically empathy, being able to see the other person's point of view without agreement. You don't have to agree just because you can see why someone's coming from a certain place. It's huge because empathy neutralizes anger and resentment. Unfortunately, and I am a licensed marriage therapist, and when I see couples, that's the main thing we usually work on is the ability to see each other's point of view, not agree, but to at least honor the, the difference. So I'd say communication is the biggest. And there's something called mind reading that happens. Mind reading is when we assume that our spouse is thinking something else. Maybe we read a look on that person's face and we say, oh, why are you mad? And that's actually a, a boundary violation. So boundaries would be the second thing, the not having healthy boundaries and making assumptions about what the other person is thinking or feeling. And the deal is to ask, are you upset or did I do something? And usually it's not what you think it is because mind reading is when we project our thoughts onto someone else. And often it's not, it's our thoughts, not what they're thinking or feeling. Hmm. And of course, criticism, constant chronic criticism of the other person is a deal breaker. So those are a few. Thank you for answering that. And I want to go back to the topic of work addictions. So when you found yourself work addicted, what measures or what actions did you take to break through this pattern? In addition to um, checking out meditation, that's what got me into meditation. I had a family member who went into treatment for alcoholism. And they, at the end of the treatment, they had a family week where the family comes and uh, they talk about, you know, it's a family illness. And in, in the context of that, I realized with my work, I was doing pretty much the same thing as my family member and the same thing my father had done. He used to hide his bottles so we would know that he was drinking. So that also was a turning point for me. I entered therapy and I learned about mindfulness and started practicing mindfulness. I wrote a book called Work Addiction, which was a little paperback, and started looking at what balance is and really started setting boundaries. And it was a slow process of coming out of that work fog. And I still work and I enjoy my work, but I work in a different way now. And and I wanted to mention what that difference is you know, when you're on the other side of work addiction. You're drawn instead of driven. <laughs> you're drawn instead of driven. Yeah, the old me just popped in. But, you know, when you're driven, you have this little voice in your head that says you have to, you must, you got to hurry, you got to do this, you got to do that. When you're drawn, you it's inside out, not outside in. And you don't let a deadline or somebody else's pressure cause you to to forfeit your own truth and your own self. So being drawn comes from the inside. Being driven comes from a, that voice or from an outside source. So when, when I hear that voice, everybody has this voice, by the way. It's, we call it the inner critic. And it shows up in a lot of different ways. It tells us we can't do this or we can't do that or who do we think we are or, you know, we're uh, imposters, you know, even though when we were successful, it was an accident, it was a fluke. And there's a reason why that voice is there. But here's the deal. When that voice pops up, it can drive us into really betraying ourselves. But what we learn to do is to interact with the voice as a part of us. In therapy, we call it the sub-personality. Everybody has it. But instead of blending with it or allowing it to take over, you might, one of the things I do, and there's a lot of neuroscience research on this that shows the, the importance of it, is I'll say, I've developed a, a technique called the AAA. The first A is I'm aware the voice is in my echo chamber yelling at me or putting me down or calling me a name. And once I'm aware of it, the second A is acknowledge. So I, I acknowledge with something like, oh, oh boy, you're really start up today. I see you're here. Now I'm talking to it just as if it's a person. And then I might say, 
you know, why are you uh, telling me I can't do that or I'm going to fall flat on my face? You really believe that, don't you? And then sometimes this may sound odd, but it isn't. It's one of the best therapeutic techniques we have today. The part will talk back sometimes or send a message like, yeah, you don't know what you're doing. You need to just go home, go to bed, pull the covers over your head. Because otherwise, you're going to make a fool out of yourself, or you're going to fall on your face. None of which ever happens, but we tend to believe those those thoughts. But as you acknowledge it and just allow it to be there, don't try to get rid of it. Don't steamroll over it. Don't debate it or ignore it. Just let it be there. What you start to notice is all of a sudden, you're in your C-spot. You're calmer. You're clearer. You feel more confident because you're separated from that part. It's not taking over. You don't feel like it's you. You feel organically a sense of separation. So all of a sudden you have a, a enlarged perspective and you go about your day and do whatever you thought you were going to do or plan to do. When you work with work-addicted people in your psychotherapy practice, what common symptoms have you observed in them? The lack of boundaries, the lack of a separation between when am I working and when am I not. And that's one of the first things we do. The lack of self-care. A self-care plan is one of the first things we work on. And what that means is, I think of four quadrants. There's work, there's relationships, there's the self, which includes nutrition, sleep, exercise, and then there's play. And normally, the workaholic is deficient in three out of those four. I mean, I the work <laughs> pretty big, yeah. But I'll often say, well, what do you do for fun? Oh, I work. I enjoy my work. Oh, okay. Well, what do you do outside of work? And usually nothing. That's that those serious little kids develop into serious little adults or big adults. And then relationships are usually brittle or lacking, actually. And so we, we develop a plan. So how can you invest a little more in these areas? And then another way I think about balance is explain the autonomic nervous system. And there are two branches, one of which is the sympathetic. The other is the parasympathetic. The sympathetic is the gas that's working and uh, getting things done and having deadlines and planning and organizing, thinking ahead, which is all great stuff. And usually there are not a whole lot of breaks. The, uh, they don't take time out. And there's tons of research on this now. And we know that taking a break in between the tasks that you're working on actually makes you more effective and the quality of what you produce is better. We know that for a fact. But people think, I don't have time to take a break. I need to get this done. So it's counterintuitive. And so we look at the balance between gas and brakes. And the brakes can be very minimal. Oh, yeah. Five-minute break. Exactly. It can be five minutes or even less than that. It can be uh, chair yoga where you stretch. It could be getting up and looking out the window for a few minutes. It can be if you're in an office building, uh, walking up and down a flight of stairs to you know get your blood circulating. It can be watching a squirrel build a nest if you've got a view of nature. It can be anything, but yeah, and it doesn't have to be long. But yeah, that's really important is the how am I balancing this out? And, and I usually go into the, the neuroscience of, of the importance of having brakes and gas because, you know, most people take better care of their cars than they do themselves. <laughs> If you think about it, if, if you're in a car driving and you don't have brakes, it's real clear you're going to burn out or go off the cliff. So you, you need brakes, whether you're, if, if you want to think of yourself as a car, you need to recharge your battery or you're going to, you're going to burn out. And unfortunately, the burnout rate in this country is astronomical nowadays. And as you described the four quadrants, self-care, relationships, play, and work, I realized that, and this is my realization right now, that I was super work addicted up until four years ago. 
because I was focused on the work quadrant, the self-care, play, and relationships were, were not there at all. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you make a change in that? Yes, I did. You know, I started meditation, mindfulness, for play, reading books, you know, taking walks, and uh, practicing compassion, kindness, and focusing on relationships, you know, being in touch with old friends here and there, and not just to work setting boundaries. It's not easy. It takes time. It has taken me four years to be able to say all these things. It takes time because these are going to be, we are breaking old patterns and building new patterns and habits take time. And we often fall on the old track. It's the awareness and recognizing being resilient to come back on the new track over and over. And that inner critique, that inner voice is always going to let us down. So how do we, you know, mute that voice or reduce the volume of the voice to just say, hey, I, I see that you are there and I don't need you to serve me. And Brian, so that brings a follow-up question to you. You are also involved in internal family systems as therapy. Could you disc I have never had this topic on this podcast, IFS, internal family systems. Could you please describe about this sort of therapy? Well, the best way I know how to say it to begin with is we're not just one person. We have, in psychology, we talk about sub-personalities. So let's say it's a Saturday and there's a football game on TV, but yet you want to take the kids to the mall. And your spouse says, well, do you, are you going to go with us or not? And you, you realize, well, a part of me wants to go. But a part of me wants to see the game. Now, that's an example of parts or sub-personalities. So the way we work with that is, the way I work with it, is I ask uh, each person when I meet with them to think of themselves as the CEO of their organization. In other words, Brian Robinson is the CEO of his personhood. Brian Robinson sits at the This is a metaphor. Think about inside. I sit at the head of the table in my organization known as Brian Robinson, and around my table, I have stockholders. Each one has an invested interest in my well-being. An example of a stockholder or a part would be my control, my anxiety, my critic, my anger, my fear, my worry, avoidance, my procrastination. So. These are examples of subpersonalities or parts or stockholders. So when something happens, when there's a threat, for example, a part or, or more will jump up and try to kick me out and take over because they think they know the best way for me uh, to protect me. And an example would be, let's say this actually happened uh, about five years ago. I was coming back from Atlanta to Asheville. I was getting off on from the interstate on a ramp, and I casually looked over to my left and noticed a woman who had been in front of me in a little red car, and she scowled at me and gave me the finger. And I was I was surprised, but what I have learned to do, because here's how I work with these parts, is I immediately went into my boardroom and I saw my anger. He's getting up and he's coming, and he's he wants me to return the gesture. And I said, stop, hold on. I'm totally inside now. I'm not even paying any attention to her. This is the key. You look at what's going on inside. Don't get diverted by the outside because it's an inside job, as I said before. So I'm watching him, and he's, he's going to stop him, and I say, no, I know you're trying to help me. You want to protect me, but that's not who I want to be in the world. Now, that's the part of me that led. Remember when I told you the story about the Buddhist monks? Uh, that part took over. Now, I didn't yell or or anything at the fundamentalist, but I was angry at the way they were treating our guests. Now, instead of my anger leading my life or, or blending, call it blending with me, he stopped because I'm, I'm acknowledging him, just like that AAA I said before. I'm saying, I see you're here and I know you're trying to help me, but no, I'm not going to do that. That's not the way I want to be. And he calmed down. I feel myself now in my C-spot. I'm calm, I'm confident, 
I'm clear. I see what's going on. And I allowed him to be there the third day. And I drove off. It was a beautiful fall day. And I just was on top of the world. Now, here's the interesting thing. When you're able to stay in your C spot, just like the monks did, it's a high. It, it's a better high than work addiction because you're centered. All those C words. You're clear. You're confident. You feel you're doing the right thing. You're being yourself and you're not letting someone take that away from you. And it's an, it's a euphoric feeling. And when you can live that way, and I don't want to make it sound like I live this way 24 seven. I'm human. I always tell people, if you see me in a traffic jam, pounding my steering wheel, please know I'm doing the best I can, but in that moment, I got hijacked. So, and that's going to happen. But when you can live more from your C spot, you're going to live a happier, healthier life. You mentioned about thinking those parts. If you remember, can you elaborate more on that? What do you mean by thinking those internal parts? That's part of the allowing. Once I realize, well, here's the thing, and this is the hardest part of this is understanding every single part that takes over is trying to help you. It's trying to protect you. Even the critic, when my critic comes in, I now know I used to fight it and get mad at it for telling me, you know, I couldn't do this or I couldn't do that. Now it's trying to keep me from getting my head blown off by sticking my neck out too far. But it, it doesn't know the truth. It's an old part that developed when I was living in the in the alcoholism. So when it tells me I can't do something or I shouldn't do it because something bad's going to happen, I, I know it's trying to help me, to protect me, but I don't buy into it anymore. And it reminds me of one of the things from Dr. Gabor Mate. He says that these old parts are like old stupid friends. Yes, We can just thank them and say them that we don't need you anymore. You served me in the past. I'm, I'm paraphrasing for sure. Yeah. We can just let them go that anger, anxiety, inner critique. We don't need you anymore. You are like my old friend and we just let you go wholeheartedly. Yeah. What I usually say along those lines is, you know what? I really appreciate your attempts to help me out here, but I'm here now. And when you were young and your dad didn't come pick you up at the movie theater. I wasn't there. You were all alone and you needed these parts to protect you. But I'm here now. We don't need the anger unless someone's trying to hurt us. We don't need the fear. We don't need all that anxiety because I'm here with you and I'm going to take care of you. And, and now these parts, instead of going away, they relax because they feel that power of someone strong who understands the world and has resources. And that calms your system down. Yes, thank you for explaining, Brian. And uh, moving forward, I want to say one testimony from Alanis Morissette, who is a renowned singer and songwriter. And she says, Brian Robinson saved my life. He is a leading edge voice in the world of folk addiction recovery. The meditations are chock full of warm and powerful wisdom, guidance and empathy. On a personal level, I am grateful for how they have helped me on my own journey of recovery. So, Brian, how do you help Alanis? I love Alanis Morissette. She was having a really rough time. She had seen some of the work I had done, the work addiction and the parts work. And so she come, came to see me, and we had sessions off and on for quite some time. And I'm only... Uh, revealing this because she's told the world. She says, I tell everybody I can about my experience with you. So I'm not revealing anything private. And so basically we used, I, I showed her th this whole idea of how we work with parts. And uh, that's what really has changed her life. And she's in recovery from overworking and work addiction and, and really working on balance in her life. And, um, She's uh, attributed that to me, but of course she did the work. It wasn't me. I just introduced her to to the, these ideas, and she 
was like a duck to water and really practices what she preaches. She, she does wonderful things for the world, not only her singing and her new Broadway show, which is nominated for a Tony, and she's going on concert tour, I think in September is when it starts, national tour of Jagged Little Pill. But she does a lot of things behind the scenes, as you know. I have heard her speaking about internal family systems, trauma, childhood issues. Yeah, right. She's helping a lot of people just by sharing her own experience. So, and she and I stay in touch. Yeah, we we stay in touch. That is awesome. And Brian, one more follow-up question on IFS, internal family systems. So are there concrete practices in this therapeutic system to to just be more aware? How can we practice this IFS sitting at our home if we don't have access to a therapist? If you want to really understand internal family systems, you really need to either go to a workshop where someone is describing it or see a therapist who's trained and certified as an IFS therapist. You can't, it's not something you can quickly learn and practice at home. Having said that, I have developed the, what I call the AAA, which is you're aware of a part, you acknowledge the part, and you allow it. And that process is a shortcut to some of the things we do in IFS. And that's certainly something people can practice on their own. And another gentleman that comes to mind in the IFS system is Richard Schwartz. Yes. So listener can also look into his work. I will put that in the show notes. I want to ask about the difference between addiction and workaholism. Are they same or is there any difference? Well, workaholism, I call it work addiction because it conveys the seriousness of the illness, is a type of addiction. There's food addiction, there's work addiction, there's, of course, drug addiction and alcoholism. There are many types of addiction. There's gambling, but underneath they all are very, they have a very similar theme that causes us to be addictive. And it's, we need more. It, whatever we're doing is not enough. We need more, more, more. So it's in, that insatiable part of us that has to have more to, to function, basically. And sometimes it becomes physiological. Even the work addiction can be physiological because of the adrenaline addiction that accompanies it. You have written more than 40 books. And I want to ask you, what books have inspired you, other other writers' books that may have inspired you for your own writing, for your own psyche, inspiration, anything? There's so many. As a child, I loved Huckleberry Finn and Tom Sawyer because they were always getting in trouble and getting out of trouble. And that kind of was me. I, I, I was... I had a troubled life, and it gave me hope that, you know, no matter how young you are, you can, at some point, there's a way out. And uh, those are the first books I remember reading. As an adult, one of my favorite books is by Viktor Frankl. It's called Man's Search for Meaning, Mm. in which he describes his experience in Dachau and Auschwitz. And one of his quotes is, as a result of his experience, between the stimulus and the res- and your response, there's a space. And in that space, you have a choice. And when you make a choice, you are free, no matter what the circumstances are. And that's what helped him survive the Holocaust. He didn't allow the, f- the fact that the Nazis imprisoned him. He was skin and bone, had very little food, no clothes sub-degree weather, people dropping dead around him like flies, he said, the Nazis will never take my will. Now, most of us, or hopefully all of us living, or who are in earshot of this squad cast, is not in a, a camp, a concentration camp, but many of us create our own prisons unwittingly, and we can get out of those prisons. But first thing is to realize you have a choice every second of your life in Many of us don't even realize that. We'll say, oh, I had no choice. You hear people say that all the time. You always have a choice. Always. You just have to step back and think, where is that choice? And when you, even if you don't make it, just knowing you have it frees you up. And it's that freedom that allows us to live more peacefully. Thank you, Brian, for this 
explanation and this, for this beautiful conversation. What is the impact you want to leave on this world? I would like to see more peace in the world, and I can only do my little corner and hope to spread the message that it starts inside all of us. You know, when I talk about the AAA and the microchillers and the C-spot, that's not the road to world peace, but it's a beginning. Just imagine if more of us could live from compassion and from clarity and from calm. If, if we could spread that message, just imagine what we could all create together as a country and as a universe. Yes. Is there anything else we should talk about or anything you want us to explore more in this conversation before we wrap up? Well, I would just say to folks, I think this is, you're probably going to mention this later, but my website is brianrobinsonbooks.com if people want to learn more. And it's B-R-Y-A-N robinsonbooks.com. And the, the last little thought would be, you know, people say, how is life treating you? Well, I don't respond to that anymore because it's not what life is doing to me. It's what am I doing to life? Life is going to come at all of us. It's not what life's doing to us. It's what do we do when life brings curveballs to us. That's where your power comes from. So ask yourself, how am I treating life? That is a beautiful question. How am I treating life? Wow. Thank you so much, Brian. It has been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure to speak with you, Nishan. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Thank you.